Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to us. Though we desert you and betray you almost daily, yet you are faithful to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would draw us to greater love and to greater obedience in the hearing of your word and observing the way that you have brought about salvation throughout history, including these two widows in the story of your salvation. Lord, give us hope that yet you might use us, rebellious as we are. Fill us with joy that you choose to use us, sinful as we are. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to the season of Advent. Advent, for those of you who don't know, is the season immediately preceding Christmas, lasting four weeks long. It's therefore a, a season of waiting. And what we are waiting for is Jesus, of course. For centuries, the saints waited for Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus for whom they were waiting. They had only signs and shadows to define their anticipation. But in their ignorance and in their darkness, they waited for Jesus. And eventually, about 2,000 years ago, he came. And he fulfilled their wildest imaginations. He was more than they ever could have dreamed of. He was entirely different from what they expected, but he was better. All their waiting was fulfilled by the cry of an infant searching for his mother's breast in the night. And as we approach the day set for the anniversary of his birth, we are reminded that we are waiting as well. And we are even waiting for the same thing they waited for. We are waiting for Jesus. You see, he came and he left. But he has promised to come again. He came to begin the work of redemption. And he will return to complete the job that he began. He began. But until then we wait. And while we wait, we work. We do the things that he has given us to do. But we work with, with humble acknowledgement that our work will never be done in this world. Only Jesus can make our feeble efforts towards peace and justice and purity a reality. And so we wait. We work and we wait. With the same kind of anticipation that the saints held in their hearts when they waited all those years ago. In fact, they assist us in our wait because they provide the language to speak about this long wait for Jesus. Their writings and prayers while waiting inform our wait in the present. They teach us how to wait well, which is why the season of Advent is typically one spent in the Old Testament with the saints who waited for Jesus to come the first time around. And this Advent, we are going to spend our four Sundays reading the four chapters of the book of Ruth. Why Ruth? Well, it's rather simple, really. Ruth is a story of waiting that, spoiler alert, ends with the birth of a baby. And the detailed and intricate narrative of Ruth ends rather startlingly with a genealogy, perhaps the least engaging form of literature ever created. 
And yet it's towards this genealogy that this well-crafted and detailed narrative builds. It's the genealogy that elevates the story of two widows and a farmer to a crucial link in the story of God redeeming the world. Eugene Peterson writes that Ruth is a story in its own right, but it is not a gospel story if it is read in isolation. It is a single luminous detail in the epic narration of cosmic salvation. The genealogy is the literary device to make a transition from a microscopic examination of how God works in an out-of-the-way place of the way people to a telescopic vision. In Ruth, therefore, two stories being told. One is corporate and the other is personal. One is cosmic in its scope. The other is quiet and out of the way, to use Peterson's language. And yet, and yet the two stories are inextricably linked. In redeeming one story, God is advancing the plot of the other at the same time. And so we will learn from Ruth that the kingdom of God progresses in this world through the individual stories of the saints no matter how inconsequential those saints may seem on the surface of their lives. The corporate story is that of the fate of God's people. In the first chapter, the progress of their story is measured in the availability of food. The story opens and we are told two very relevant pieces of information about life in Israel at that time. One, there's a famine in the land. And two, the land was being run by judges. And the significance of the first fact, the famine in the land, is dependent upon our understanding of the second fact, that judges ruled in Israel at that time. You see, when the judges ruled in Israel, chaos and immorality reigned. The book of Judges described that period twice as a time when everyone did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. It was a dark chapter for God's people. And God punished them by giving them a famine. He disciplined them with a famine. They had been warned that this could be the result of their corporate disobedience in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, God's people were told that disobedience would result in curses upon them and their land. And one of the curses was that the sky over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land into powder, and only dust shall come down upon you from the sky until you are destroyed. Famine was promised for their disobedience. And in Ruth 1, it is famine they are experiencing. And the question that Ruth 1 poses is therefore, is there hope for God's people? Will God relent and have mercy on his people again? And with that question posed in just the first verse of the book of Ruth, with that question still lingering about, the narrative of Ruth 1 begins in earnest by zooming in on the personal story of Naomi and an inconsequential family in Israel. Now, Peterson observes that in the book of Ruth, there are no outstanding, historically prominent figures, no splendid kings, no charismatic judges, no fiery prophets. It's a plain story about two widows and a farmer 
whose lives have been woven into the fabric of God's salvation through the ordinary actions of common life. Naomi's story, which is very much the focus of chapter 1, despite the book bearing the name of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, her story is a common one. She's an ordinary citizen. Her husband, Elimelech, is even introduced as a certain man of Bethlehem. He is no man of real consequence, and neither is his family. They are common people. If anything is extraordinary about Naomi, it's the tragedy that she experiences in a single decade. We did not read the historical background of the first six verses. But to make a long story short, Naomi was married with two sons. And when Israel began to experience famine, this family of four left the land in search of food and stability. They went to live in Moab, a neighboring country with sketchy beginnings. But there they stayed for 10 years. I say they stayed for 10 years, but it'd be more accurate to say that Naomi stayed there for 10 years because soon after arriving in Moab, Naomi's husband died and she was left alone with two sons, Malon and Chilion. In Hebrew, these two sons' names mean weakling and pining, which should give you a hint of how their stories are going to end. Naomi's two sons each marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they also died, so that the only characters remaining alive are the women, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. It was a, a pitiable position in the ancient world to have no men in your family to provide for you. Uh, This is not a a statement about the inherent value of these women or a knock on their industriousness, for we will discover that Ruth and Naomi are both industrious and strong women. It was simply the reality of life in the ancient world that the absence of men spelled trouble for women. Husbands and sons were essential for provision and safety, and Naomi now lacked both. And neither was there any hope of having more children, which she so clearly explained to her daughters-in-law when trying to convince them to return to their own families and let her fend for herself. She was in about as bad a position as one could be in living in the ancient world. And in a series of contrasts, Naomi explains her position and her state of mind for us in verses 20 and 21. Call me no longer Naomi which means sweetness in Hebrew. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi left Israel sweet, but she's returned bitter. She went away full, but has returned empty. And the question is, is there hope for Naomi? Will God relent and have mercy on her. They're the same questions posed about the corporate story, the story of God's people in the first verse. Is there hope? And will God relent? While the progress of the corporate story is measured in the availability of food, the progress of Naomi's story is measured in the faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. In the person of Ruth, There is hope to be found for not just the personal story of Naomi, but also the corporate story of God's people. See, Ruth was a Moabite, a foreigner. And the text goes to great lengths to make sure you never forget it. 
Six six times Ruth's name is mentioned, and it's Ruth the Moabite. But the reason for this is because there's great hope in remembering that Ruth is a foreigner. Because Ruth abandons her people to become one of God's people. She abandons her own home, her siblings and parents in order to join herself to Naomi and to Naomi's people. When Naomi tries to get Ruth to return to her parents and her home, Ruth famously refuses and insists on returning to Israel with Naomi. Where you go, I will go, she tells Naomi. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And theologian Sinclair Ferguson says that this is unmistakably a declaration of conversion from Ruth the Moabite. She has adopted the covenant language and inserted herself into God's plan of redemption by clinging to Naomi. Orpha took Naomi's advice and returned to her family in Moab. But Ruth clung to Naomi and returned with her to the land of Israel. And it's in this act of faithfulness, this common act of faithfulness and conversion that the personal and corporate stories find hope. In the person of Ruth, there is a glimmer that God will indeed relent and have mercy on not only his people, but on Naomi as well. Here in Ruth, the two stories converge and progress together. The corporate and the personal stories progress hand in hand because God has written them as inextricably linked. The story of God's people finds hope in the fact that the famine is over. Food has returned and the people have returned with it. And among the people returning, ah, as a convert, there's new faith. You see, God is still at work in the hearts of people to give them life. He has not abandoned his people after all. And for Naomi, she's not utterly alone. She may be bitter and empty, but with her, uh, with her is a daughter-in-law of the marrying age. Perhaps there's hope for Naomi after all. Perhaps she can be filled up and made sweet again. The rest of the book tells the story of these personal hopes, but by weaving the personal and corporate stories together, you see what God is doing, don't you? God is telling us that the lives of the saints lived out in quiet faithfulness in out-of-the-way places advance the story of his kingdom progressing in this world. It's simple and common, but it's God's chosen method. God is telling us that your story Your story is significant. No matter who you are or what you are doing, your life may be be, uh, unimportant and inconsequential in the eyes of the world. But regardless of your position, the kingdom of God advances through you. How so? Here's how. Forgive the person who has offended you. The person who's really and genuinely hurt you Forgive them. And in that moment, the kingdom of God has broken into this world. Resist the temptation that besets you. Lust or anger or jealousy or self-pity or pride. Whatever it is, resist it. And in that moment, the kingdom of God has advanced in this world. The hope of God's people has been strengthened. Spend your day in prayer and fasting. 
meditating upon God's word and the kingdom of, of God advances in not only your heart, but in the lives for whom you pray and the lives of those people with whom you interact. Take notice of the vulnerable and the marginalized among you. They are there. Give them your ears, your time, yourself, your money even. And the kingdom of God advances one coat at a time, one bag of food at a time, one scholarship at a time. One moment of feeling seen and understood for the first time. The kingdom of God breaks in. Tell the truth to your own hurt. Ah, the world will take notice. The kingdom of God will move forward. Be patient with your kids or with the person who really gets on your nerves. But it's your brother and sister in Christ. And the kingdom of God breaks into this world. Apologize. Humbly acknowledge your wrong. Ask for forgiveness. And the kingdom of God will advance advance in our midst. Show the world that the thing that matters most to you is God and that you will choose him over all things, over your own reputation, over your job, over friends, over sports, over your own apathy and sluggishness, over your own children, your own siblings, your parents even. For did not Jesus tell us in Luke 18, that there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You see, it's through our personal stories of faithfulness that the kingdom of God comes to earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but to pray that prayer, which is the Lord's prayer, to ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven without intentionally pursuing holiness and truth, justice and peace, is to risk becoming a hypocrite. To be passive in our personal stories is to abandon God's kingdom project in our midst. His work of redeeming the world to make it all good again. God uses his children to advance the kingdom and oftentimes without our knowing it. Ruth had no idea that she was leading us to Jesus. She had no idea that her son would be the grandfather of the great King David and the many great grandfather of Jesus himself. But God knew. And he wove her story into his story of redemption so that the faithfulness of this inconsequential widow from Moab would advance the coming of his kingdom in this world. Or as Peterson describes her story, Ruth is the instance of a person uprooted, obscure, alienated, who learned to understand her story as a modest but nevertheless essential part of the vast epic whose plot is designed by God's salvation. And your life is no different. God is doing the same with you. But do you realize the significance of your life in God's plan of salvation? Have you bought in? Have you adopted the covenant language for yourself and inserted yourself into the plan of salvation by clinging to Jesus as Ruth clung to Naomi? Are you in? Yours is a modest but nevertheless essential part of God's vast epic of salvation and his kingdom progresses through your quiet and out-of-the-way faithfulness. 
May many be led to Jesus through you. And may he come quickly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand as we sing our hymn of reflection. <clears throat> come thou long expected Jesus. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray for the church and the world. Almighty and ever-living God, 
We are taught by your holy word to offer prayers and petitions and to give thanks for all people. We humbly ask you to mercifully receive our prayers, inspire continually the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity, and concord, and grant that all who confess your holy name may agree in the truth of your holy word and live in unity and godly love. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. We pray that you will lead the nations of the world in the way of righteousness and so guide and direct their leaders that all people may enjoy the blessings of freedom and peace. May you have mercy on those suffering throughout the world. We ask especially for mercy on the peoples in Central America who are suffering due to hurricane devastation and extensive flooding. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. We pray today for our nation's leaders, both national and local. Cause them to use their authority wisely and with honesty. We ask for your guidance in helping them to put aside their differences so that they might guide our country in ending our divisions. We pray you would also give them guidance in leading this country through this pandemic. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. Give grace, Heavenly Father, to the leaders of your church, that by their life and teaching they may proclaim your true and life-giving word and rightly administer our holy sacraments. We pray for our own church, its elders, and congregation. Forgive us when we fail to represent the grace and truth of Jesus. May you have mercy upon those suffering this day in our church family. We continue to pray for the Morris family, Annandale Smith, Marva Joliff, and others who may be suffering or have other concerns unknown to us. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. We pray for our neighbors who are living in this city and community, for the homeless, the hungry, those without work, and those in prison. May you make these people visible to us and give us wisdom and courage to do what you have asked of us through your word to love our neighbor as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. Lord, it is this church's desire to be your instrument in the world around us, beyond the four walls of this church. <clears throat> Bless our outreach efforts, that they would further the ministries where we partner so that your name would be proclaimed and the love of Christ would be made manifest. We pray today for the Mana Center, a faith-based ministry working to feed and clothe those in need and praying that the people being helped may leave a little better off than when they arrived. May they see you in these efforts. May we as a church give the Mana Center our support, both in prayer and time, that no one in our community might go hungry. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, you have promised to hear what we ask in the name of your Son. Accept and fulfill our petitions. We pray not as we ask in our ignorance, nor as we deserve in our sinfulness, but as you know and love us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our, our Father, Father, who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. Will you stand and sing the doxology with me? Praise God from whom all blessings I'll give you the benediction in just one minute, but a reminder that if you have a coat to give uh, for uh, Bright Futures, there were supposed to be bins outside today for you to drop them off. You can drop them off Monday through Wednesday from 9.30 to 1.30 here at the office. If you're not able to make it during that time, please uh, text me or text, um, or, or text Chuck. Uh, Chuck's email, uh, phone number went out, and we'll arrange to, to get your coat here somehow. Um, Receive God's blessing. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ now and always, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.